right, welcome back to the CEA podcast. This is Carrie Dahlman, CEA president, joined by Amy Baca Olert, CEA vice president. Today, we're really excited to host a special guest, uh, somebody who makes tax policy interesting. Um, and uh, and you know, funny. And funny. Absolutely funny. This is Carol Hedges joining us today. She's the executive director of the Colorado Fiscal Institute. Uh, Carol has been an important part of the research, policy, and advocacy community in Colorado for more than 15 years. So, Carol, let's just jump into this. We've had 25 years of TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. We all know what's happened over those 25 years, and, and so talk to us about what you think the future looks like under Tabor. Hey, thanks, Carrie. It's great. It's so fun to be here with you guys today, and, and thanks for um, the kind introduction. I, I, you know, I hope to make it funny, but it's a really serious topic. You know, what we, how we fund public investments in the state of Colorado really does make a difference as to whether or not the state is going to sustain its way of life or not. Um, and so when I think about the Tabor Amendment and the fact that we've been putting tax policy in our Constitution for a, even a lot longer than that. And we're the only state to do so. Well, you know, there, there are some states that have some portion, some, a few things in the, you know, like they have to balance their budget, which we have. But we're the only one that says that, the, the, uh, that our elected officials can't make tax policy. And that's really, to me, what the biggest problem with, with the Tabor Amendment is. When I look forward, and, and that's really what I'm trying to do these days, because we can have, and we have had for the last 15 or 20 years, lots of discussion about did Tabor cause the crisis in K-12 education funding that we have? Did Tabor cause the um, dramatic increase in tuition and dramatic accompanying increase in student debt? Is Tabor the reason why we have $9 billion worth of unmet transportation needs? And, you know, we can argue back and forth whether it was the cause or whether it was related or whatever. To me, the real issue now is does our current constitutional tax policy set us up for the next 25 years? Um, and I think that really is the, the bigger question. All the things that I talked about, $9 billion of transportation need, almost $800 million behind inflation since 2000 for per-pupil per funding, um, tuition growing faster here uh, than in most places. All those things are true. And so whether or not it's directly related to Tabor, I don't, I, I don't know. And I, quite frankly, you know, I don't really care. Yeah. What I really care about is what do we do going forward? Um, and I see some, some really incredible opportunities out there, including some ballot measures that are going to be considered by voters in 2018, as well as a really You're talking about Initiative 93 being one of those? Oh, absolutely. Great schools. Um, thriving, uh, thriving communities. communities mm -hmm. I think is, is just, it's the measure whose time is right. And it, you know, one of the things that makes it so uh, important is that it goes beyond just talking, dealing with some of the Tabor questions. I mean, it goes beyond just asking voters to increase taxes. It also addresses part of the other constitutional tax policy that everyone's struggling with, and of course, that's the Gallagher Amendment. Mm -hmm. You know, taxes can be so complicated to understand. How would you tell an average educator or even citizen out there listening to our podcast, how would you explain our tax structure or system here in Colorado and what it does to our public services like transportation, public education, all those public goods that we rely on? Well, it's a great question. and It really is at the heart of what the struggle is. You know, this country was 
born in a tax revolt, right? We've never liked to pay taxes. And at some level, I mean, nobody likes to just give over their, the money that they've worked so hard for. I think one of the ways I like to start conversations about taxes is to just remind people, because we all know this, that you don't get something for nothing. And that in fact, we have to pay taxes in order to pay for the things that make our communities the places we want them to live, or we all want to live. And one of the things I often ask when I'm in front of a group of people are, what are those things? You know, what makes your community a cool place or a place that you want to be? And I hear things from, our, we have a local school, we have access to healthcare, it's a safe place for us to live, it's close to my job, or it's easy for me to get from point A to point B. We have really great parks, we, you know, and then you also hear things like, I really like my neighbors, it, I, I like the way I can, you know, either walk or I have a big yard. All of those things are influenced in some way by the public dollars that we all collectively invest. I'm going to make a radical suggestion here, and that is that one of the biggest challenges that we face in funding public services is that we're so darn good at delivering them, they become invisible. Now, I know people will take exception with that because everybody has their own favorite complaint about government, you know, whether you had to wait too long for to get your driver's license or whether they aren't fixing the pothole out in front of your house, or you think that a million dollars spent for the film credit isn't the appropriate thing to do with public dollars. We've all got our complaints, and that's the cool part of a democracy, is we get to argue about how to allocate those resources. But few people will argue, or even suggest, that the role that the public investments play in building strong communities isn't essential, it isn't foundational. Um, and so that's how I talk about taxes. I like to think about, I like to help people think about what they buy and what our communities would look like if we didn't have those resources. And I think in today's world and this challenge of the future is to think about what they would look like if we did a better job. And I'm going on here, but you guys know me well enough to know I do that. But <laughs> one of the things that really seems to get people to nod in an audience when I talk about this is, I take the $2,600, um, figure, what we're below the national average in funding per pupil, mm -hmm. and I ask people to just think for a minute about what the classroom of their kids or their grandkids or their neighbor's kids would look like if it had $50,000 more money available to invest in whatever was the appropriate thing that the professionals felt like needed to be in those classrooms. Mm -hmm. That's a point at which people can kind of say, oh, that, I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, and so those are the ways that I tend to uh, approach that question. Well, and that'd be like having an additional $50,000 in a single classroom. Yes. Like, blow yes. my mind what I could do with my students. Yes, like what would you, you know, and, and again, I don't know exactly what, to the, what that $50,000 should be used for. I think there are professionals in the education system who can make those decisions. Do we need more technology? Do we need additional adults in the room to help little kids learn how to get prof to be reading proficient before mm -hmm. third grade? Do we need more science equipment? I don't know, but I know that being able to think about what an investment could improve is a way 
is a much better way of thinking about this tax question than thinking about whether or not we pay too much or too little. And oh, by the way, just to remind everybody, we do have the 45th lowest taxes in the country, so it's not like state taxes are, are, are terribly uh, burdensome to, to uh, most of our population. Right. I, you know, one of the things that um, I've noticed over the years, you know, a lot of people move to Colorado, and uh, one of the things that I hear quite frequently is that our property taxes are so much lower um, you know, I have some friends who have moved here recently from California, and they just are in love with our property tax structure. Our property tax structure for homeowners um, is incredibly uh, generous. Generous. I think that to is the, the taxpayer. Right word. Very it's, generous. It's very generous to the taxpayer, and you know that that sits difficult for some people who are seeing their property taxes going up. And quite frankly, I mean, realistically, wages haven't grown, grown up, gone up for much of the, of the uh, middle class and, and working families over the last 15 or 20 years. And so it is a struggle when they see that the, the prop, their property tax bill goes up as their wages stay, uh, stay stagnant or flat. Mm -hmm. But the reason their wages, their property taxes are going up is because the value of their homes are going up because this is a popular place to live, where the assets that we consider our wealth is going up. That's why in, these day, in this day and age, you see property tax increases because of the residential assessment rate, you know, that whole Gallagher thing. We're actually subjecting smaller and smaller percentages of the value of our house to taxes every year. Um, I think we rank, and I, I, it's either, uh, sometimes I'm, I'm getting older, um, <laughs> we all which are. Is, which is a good thing. Oh, I guess. Every day we wake up is a <laughs> yeah, good exactly. day. Yeah, it's better than the alternative, my, you know. Um, but I think we rank, I think if we're 42nd in, in residential property taxes as compared to every other state in the country. And I, I, that's good. There's nothing wrong. I mean, you know, we should keep our taxes reasonable. But then we have to think about what does it mean that we're not paying residential property taxes? It means we have a huge hole in funding for our schools. Mm -hmm. And how does that, what happens there? We go to the Capitol building and we now ask for a bigger and bigger percentage of our state taxes to go to schools where we used to fund them more, more robustly locally, and then that creates additional problems for funding higher education and transportation, et cetera, and it creates this sort of Hunger Games environment at <laughs> the Capitol building, which doesn't seem to be what we ought to be doing when we know we've got one of the strongest economies in the country. It's crazy that we're fighting one another over kind of crumbs mm -hmm. in a time when the economy is really doing well. Yeah, and you know, as, as someone who has gone all across the state in various communities and school districts, you know, one of the things that I find so disheartening is that we also have this haves versus have-nots in communities that can pass local mills and bonds and communities that can't. And you sometimes have kids, you know, in school districts just a few miles apart who have great disparities in their resources, their access to things like you mentioned, technology, you know, even human bodies like school counselors and things that we know are necessary to provide a good quality public education. Um, and so all these things that have, you know, that our system has kind of created under this structure ultimately really end up hurting our students and our families and communities. So, so what are some ways out? What can we do to, to make Colorado a place where we can 
you know, have these great public goods in these strong, thriving communities that we all know we want. I, it's such a great point, and, it, and it's one of those things, the things that I think we think about least for the, you know, 75 of us who regularly think about the, you know, the <laughs> Taxpayer Bill of Rights and the Tabor Amendment. But the, that disparities piece is so essential. Um, I once had the uh, opportunity to interview Doug Bruce, who's the author of the Tabor Amendment, and um, I asked him if he really meant that the dollars that came from the uh, legislature allocated to school districts should count toward their Tabor limit, because that was, when the, when the Tabor was originally adopted, that was right, and so if there was more money coming from the state to a school district, the school district had to go to their voters and ask them to keep that additional money, and most people have now taken care of that problem. But, but Doug said, absolutely, I intended that, because if you can't afford it, you shouldn't have it. Now, that is his philosophy, and I understand that that is the philosophy embedded now in our Constitution because of Article 10, Section 20. But when I talk to people around the state, we don't, most of us don't think it makes sense that your zip code should determine whether or not you have access to internet, whether you have, um, whether you can attract and retain a high quality teacher, whether your building can be safe enough that uh, you can, you know, have school activities in it all year round. But there is built into the Tabor Amendment and our current structure this have and have not. It is designed that way. It is not by accident. And that's, again, one of the reasons that I think that when we're thinking about going forward, we really have to ask ourselves those questions. So, so your question about what can we do? What do we do now? Well, I think, um, I think we're at a very interesting moment. I think we need to be careful about some of the things that are happening at the Capitol building so that we don't dig the hole that we're already in any deeper. You know, that's sort of the common sense wisdom. If you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we have a hole um, as it relates to funding for education from, you know, preschool all the way to higher education. So first and foremost, we need to stop digging. We need to stop doing things that are taking away money from what almost everyone will tell you is the number one priority for the state government, and that is um, uh, helping school, helping local districts pay for schools. So there's some legislation pending um, now that would... Uh, address another glaring problem in this state, and that's transportation. Mm -hmm. But it would do so by paying for the debt that we need to undertake for transportation out of the funds that we're currently using to fund for K-12, higher ed, early childhood, healthcare, et cetera. That, that doesn't make any damn sense to me. Robbing mm -hmm. Peter to pay Paul. I, I understand completely that we need um, more transportation uh, resources. Yeah, the time I'm stuck in traffic is a really good indication that we need to do something to increase our infrastructure investment. But are you going to feel any better about that if you've what the way you've paid for dealing with your infrastructure investment is by stealing money to educate our kids? Hell no. That isn't the way to do this thing. So that there are there is a there are a couple of people talking, a couple of organizations, um, one of them being the Denver Metro Chamber, talking along with others around the state. I was just out in Grand. Junction Club 20 is very interested uh -huh. in this measure as well, to put a tax increase on the ballot in 2018 to increase funding for uh, transportation, specifically to pay for 
bonds and bond payments going forward. Is that through a gas tax, or how are they proposing to do that? The, the measures that they have currently filed are pending with the title board are with a sales tax. Okay. Um, so it would be a, uh, there, there's multiple measures, so they haven't decided which particular amount yet. Um, but it, but it would be a sales tax uh, uh, increase. I will tell you that my organization has done some work on, you know, we all understand that sales taxes fall more heavily on low income folks. Mm -hmm. We were concerned about that and we actually did some research comparing the, what we call regressivity of uh, gas taxes versus uh, uh, regular sales tax. And in fact, a sales tax has a little bit, is a little bit less regressive than, than a gas tax. So we've, you know, we think that there may be other ways to do it. I think a gas tax that expands the number of people who pay it in different ways could be a good alternative as well. But we've come to the conclusion that we really are at a place where transportation is enough of an issue in the state of Colorado that a, a, a gas t uh, sales tax measure um, is an appropriate way to mm -hmm. pay. The, one of the really great things about sales tax is other people who don't live here tend to pay them. Um, so that's another uh, sort of Bonus. advantage <laughs> of a yeah. sales tax measure. So I think we need to fund schools and I say, or fund um, transportation. And I say that if we do that responsibly, that leaves more room in the, in, the, in the growing general fund to help sort of fill in some of the hole that we've developed in other places. I'm also very excited about the opportunity that voters are going to have to um, decide on a measure um, that I think the committee that is supporting this measure is called uh, Great Schools Thriving Communities. And it is a measure to um, increase uh, the income tax for folks making more than $150,000 a year. It's, a, it, it, it's graduated. Right, it's it, like it, four it levels. Right, yeah. mm -hmm. right, a little bit, a small increase for people making 150 with a larger increase for people making um, over, over, a half over half a million. Mm -hmm. It also does, um, it also attempts to take on some of the Gallagher challenges. And so it's a bold uh, proposal. Um, will you will you talk just a little bit about what Gallagher does? Because as I have gone out and talked to voters about signing the Initiative 93 petition, there's not a lot of understanding, I find, amongst the average voter about what Gallagher does and how it impacts their property taxes. It doesn't surprise me, because most of us have other things that we worry about every mm -hmm. day, rather than how some, you know provision of tax code affects our property taxes. But I'd love to talk a little bit about the Gallagher Amendment. And I would also, um, for people who are interested in learning more about how it works, I would um, direct you to our website at the Colorado Fiscal Institute. It's um, coloradofiscal.org. We have a pretty good um, explainer video on how the Gallagher Amendment works and, and what its impact is. But in essence, what happens is, how it works is, back in 1982, Voters approved a constitutional amendment that said that the share of property taxes collected statewide from homes would be the same every year going forward as in essence they were in 1982. Well, back in 1982, houses constituted about 45% of the value of total property in the state of Colorado with business and vacant land and you know, agriculture up make up the rest. Well, today, homes make up over 75% of the value of all property in Colorado, with non-residential making up 25%. But because we locked that 
formula that said always it'll only be 45% into the Constitution in 1982. Gallagher works to drive down the percentage of our taxes, or our homes that are subject to tax each year. And it doesn't go down every year, but it just fell from 7.96, about 8%, down to just over 7.2%. So if you have a home worth $100,000, well, good on you, because I don't know where they are these days. But if you have a house, just like the math is easier for me. If it's $100,000 worth of property, you pay your resident, your um, mill levy on just over $7,000 of that of value. And as that residential, as the number of dollars that are generated by local property taxes goes down, because the amount of um, uh, that's subject to taxation goes down and generates less dollars for schools, that puts more and more pressure on the Capitol building to come in and fill in so that we can make sure that all kids, uh, that, that uh, funding for all kids across the state are growing at mm -hmm. least at the rate of inflation. What Gallagher does in bottom line, Carrie, is it keeps our property taxes low. Mm -hmm. It Which keeps our residential our property schools. taxes low. Yeah. It starves our schools. It starves our uh, roads. Are... Our, well, and in, I mean, our uh, fire districts. In a lot mm -hmm. of places across the state, it is property taxes 100% that fund emergency services. Mm -hmm. And if you live in a place like Denver or the Denver metro area where our residential uh, values, our home values are going up pretty rapidly, this reduction in what percentage of them gets taxed doesn't hurt our schools and uh, other services as much mm -hmm. because a lower percentage of exposure ma is made up for by an increase in value, an increase in value. But you go any place outside of the Front Range and a few of the resort areas in the state, they aren't seeing their home values go up at the same rate. So when you say we're going to reduce the amount of your tax that of your home that is subject to taxation, it means less dollars for schools and uh, counties and uh, fire districts all across the state. Once again, back in 1982, it was one of those things where we were trying, worried more about how much we paid, not thinking about what it was that we, we paid for. What we paid for. And again, maybe Gallagher made perfect sense in 1982. I don't think it makes us, it doesn't do us any good to go back and look at it. But now looking forward, is this going to make yeah. sense? And the other thing I want to add about Gallagher is that as the home exposure goes down, small business exposure does not. So the, the amount of a, of a business that's exposed to property taxes is written in the Constitution at 29%. That business owner who owns that $100,000 business is paying almost four and a half times what the residential, what the residential re assessment rate is. And we have to think about those things. I mean, that's a, small businesses and businesses across the state are also important to our economic prosperity. I mean, right. that's where our jobs come from, right? And so we need, to, we need to be thinking about the balance of those things. So I think, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that you said is too few of us think about these things. Because it, actually it's pretty complicated, it's pretty complex and, and hard to understand. But what would your pitch be to, again, the average voter on why we need to vote for something like Initiative 93? Why is that important? How will it help us? And even if I don't understand Gallagher, Tabor, and my property taxes, and small, all of that, how it all works, 
Why does something like an Initiative 93 matter to me as a voter? I think the most, the, the best argument I can make is that public investments really do build the communities that we all want to live in. And uh, Initiative 93 goes to the heart of the most important of those initiatives, and that is education. Education is that investment that gives over and over and over again. We don't have to bond on it. We don't have to pay future interest rates. All we do is invest in our kids today and reap the benefits of those investments year after year after year after year. And we can't get something for nothing. And we have tried for so long to, to, to work smarter. And I think we've done a great job of that. But there comes a point at which we just simply need to turn the corner, improve, the equity in our tax system by making it so that higher income people are paying a more fair share of the overall system and then taking those dollars and investing in them than the thing that we know pays the highest dividends over and over again. Um, I think that most of us believe that education really is the key to our own individual economic security. Uh, when we think about where we would be without having that public education or access to education that we have it's pretty hard to imagine and I just think it's time that we take this expanding economy and make a down payment on our future by spending a little bit more on our kids and our schools. Let's shift gears a minute. You mentioned um, uh, briefly Senate Bill 1 which is this idea of we're going to fund transportation through a 20-year bond um, how will that potentially impact other services in the event that we have a cooling off in the economy? It's a great question and it really is um, at the heart of our concern of, and why we are calling for a dedicated new revenue stream to pay for those bonds. So we don't have to go back too far and I, and I wish I had all the data at my fingertips. I, if this was two days later, I would have it, so you could we can edit it in maybe later. <laughs> but um, when you make a when the state makes a commitment to repay a bond, by by effect that goes to the top of the list of the bills that we pay, right? We, we it's really bad for us for all kinds of investments, all kinds of uh, uh, ways that people think about the state. Uh, sort of economically and financially if we don't make our bond payments, right? Just bad news. So if we decide um, in 2018 to pass a piece of legislation that requires that we spend $250 million on a bond payment every year for the next 20 years out of the general fund, it doesn't make any difference what happens to the economy, that payment gets made. And it wasn't that long ago that we were faced with that issue. When we were cut, when the legislature was faced with cutting budgets back in 19 or in 2009, we were making our bond payments first while we were digging the hole that we now think of as the negative factor or the budget stabilization factor. Uh, we right? call it the negative factor here. Well, I think the BS <laughs> factor the BS. has a little bit of a charm to it too. We do like BS. But I mean, we have to remember that, that what that means is that we pay the bankers first. We pay our debts first. And, I, and I'm not saying that there's, a, I'm not advocating that we wouldn't pay back our mortgage payments, right? I mean, I'm a Kansas girl. You pay your mortgage first, right, before you do anything else. That's prudent policy. 
The problem is that the $250 million of general fund that will get paid for first jumps in front of paying for education, whether it's higher ed or, mm -hmm. or, or K-12 education. We've been down that path. We've seen what that does. This is a time when adding an additional revenue source to pay for that future, and just a little bit of it today, right? Because people will be paying over the next 25 years as they enjoy, or 20 years, as they enjoy the benefits of a transportation system, they'll be continuing to contribute. And we just think that's the, the, the approach to do this. Sort of spread that benefit out, or spread the payment out over the beneficiaries, and don't hurt kids today or in three years from now, when we're in a, uh, an economic downturn. It's a matter of when, not a matter of if. And so let's just be fiscally prudent. I think we pride ourselves in Colorado about being fiscally prudent. And I think put adding a revenue stream to pay for those bonds would be the really good thing to do. So what are some other things happening at the Capitol right now that are of interest to you that you think you know could, again, have an impact on us as, as a state um, here in Colorado? Well, I'm going to give, again, a, a little blatant plug for um, an effort that um, our colleagues at the Bell Action Center and uh, we at the Colorado Fiscal Institute have been pushing, and it's a new campaign called Stop Digging. It's built on this theory that when you find yourself in a hole, the common sense thing to do is stop digging, and there's a whole series of legislative issues that we think that the legislature should put down their damn shovels on this and start being a little bit more responsible going forward. Um, Senate Bill 1 is one of those, but, but let me lift up, and there's a whole bunch of tax credits that are listed um, in that, and you can find that at stopdiggingcolorado.com, stopdiggingcolorado.com. It'll give you a bunch of information about these things and also give you an opportunity to, to express your concerns about um, trying to get our legislators to stop digging. The one that I want to lift up because I think is um, not only is it challenging financially, but I think it's also really significant on a policy um, uh, basis. And that is a provision um, to, it was originally introduced as a bill, there were two bills introduced to clarify Colorado's policy around the use of 529 tax-sheltered um, uh, savings accounts mm -hmm. for, for higher education. Colorado has one of the uh, most generous um, tax deductions or, or uh, to tax deductions in the country. Mm -hmm. Part of that is because we have a really robust investment program. It's called College Invest. And um, for years and years, Colorado uh, taxpayers have been putting money in a 529 plan through College Invest and getting the federal benefits of when you take that money out to pay for an approved higher education expense, any gain that you realized through that investment isn't taxed at the federal level. But in Colorado, we're so interested in encouraging people to save for higher education, we actually provide a state tax deduction for any contribution you make to your 529 plan. So if you put in $1,000 in a year to your 529 plan for what we call approved higher education expenses, you can take $1,000 off taxable income. It's a great incentive to get people to uh, contribute, Contribute, particularly higher, higher income folks who have that kind of luxury. 
During the federal tax debate at the end of last calendar year, uh, in the ta uh, tax cut job creation thing that Congress <laughs> foisted on us at the end of the year, one of the more obscure provisions allows contributions to 529s to have received the same federal treatment even if they use, even if those savings are used to pay tuition at a private K through 12 education institution. What? Sounds a lot like vouchers to me. It is vouchers. It is an indirect way to get to vouchers. So that what the federal government did is said it's that it's just that federal piece, right? So if you invest money and if you realize any gain, you don't have to pay interest on that. Well, that isn't as big of a deal for because you don't tuition for pre, for K through 12, you're paying it every year, right? And you're doing it all along as your kids growing up. At the state level, however, there's a question of whether or not those contributions to the college invest account get you the tax deduction. Get you the state tax deduction. And there is great ambiguity about that. There is an attorney general's opinion that suggests that it was just sloppy drafting on the part of Congress and that the intent is that it should be available for um, uh, uh, to be used for to, to get the state deduction if even if you're going to use the money to pay for private school tuition. There is another um, interpretation by legislative legal services that suggests it is not an appropriate use um, and you, that if, if a taxpayer does contribute to a 529 and then uses it to pay for uh, private K-12, that the Department of Revenue has the ability to recapture that tax deduction that that taxpayer realized. Well, there's a, that originally there was a bill introduced to, to say, we can use it, if you can get the deduction for K-12 uh, private uh, tuition, and there was a bill introduced to say, to clarify that you can't. The bill that says that you can use it died in the House Education Committee. The bill that says you can't and clarify that and make sure that the Department of Revenue is ready and able to investigate to make sure people don't use it inappropriately, because it's confusing, is alive and is moving, and that is a bill that I think we really ought to be focusing on because, quite frankly, if there isn't clarity, the Department of Revenue is probably not going to be in a position to take a look at those investments. That means that we will have people who are potentially doing things that are illegal, and we don't want that to happen. It potentially increases the size of that tax credit at a time when we're struggling to make sure that we have enough money uh, for... Uh, uh, funding public schools, and it also is what I perceive to be that nose under the tent, the camel's nose under the tent, for using public dollars, tax dollars, to pay for um, private school tuition. That is a debate that needs to happen separately. It needs to be a public debate to decide what we want to do. We ought not be just simply accepting what they tell us in Washington as the policy in the state of Colorado, and it's one that concerns me a great deal. Yeah, absolutely. And that certainly is a bill that we're watching and following very closely and uh, working on as well, because you're right, it has huge implications. Um, and again, when we think about we're already not funding our public schools 
adequately. We have an $828 million hole that's been dug. And to think that we would even think about doing anything, you know, to pull more money away from our public schools is just kind of doesn't make sense, does it? It, it, it certainly doesn't to me. Um, and I think to most of the Coloradans that I've been talking with over the last few um, years, we, we had a privilege. One of the things that, um, you know, it's 2018, it's election year, if we haven't noticed. Um, <laughs> and there are going to be a lot of things on the ballot in addition to candidates for uh, offices all across the state. And um, my organization had the privilege of working with others to, to do an effort in 2016 that we called Count Me In. And it's just an effort to try to help people better understand what their role is as a decision maker, particularly around tax and budget issues. Because in Colorado, we have unique responsibilities here. We've taken away from our elected official, the decision, officials the decision to decide what our tax policy ought to look like. Well, somebody's got to make those decisions. If they can't, then that becomes our responsibility. And so we did um, a lot of traveling around with a, with a whole set of partners in 2016, and we're going to be re-upping that effort again in 2018 to talk to folks about that, the role that, that, um, public, that, that they play in being a decision maker. And what I've heard over and over and over again is we really do want a, a, a public sector that works. We really do want a public sector that helps complement and create an environment where businesses can thrive. And I think um, these kinds of policies that kind of backdoor, you know, today's tax credit legislation is tomorrow's loophole. <laughs> and I think we all are pissed off about too many tax loopholes, mm -hmm. right? But we don't think about that. And I find in this time when we've got this expanding economy, we're looking at more money than we spent last year. It's, it's intoxicating for people. And we sometimes get a little goofy. But, but I think it's important to think about it this way. Many of us have worked for organizations over time that build into our pay some sort of a regular pay increase, right? And so we know that it's we're gonna get it and we're gonna get it every year and we can count on it. And so we can build sort of the size of our mortgage payment over time and, and all of those, those longer term um, uh, decisions, we, can, we have some confidence about it. But then a lot of organizations then sometimes either in, instead of or in addition to provide a bonus. And you do different things with your bonus, right? You do those kind of one-time things because you can't guarantee that you're going to have that bonus next year. Well, that's what tax credits are. Tax credits are a permanent taking away that we often end up paying for at a time when we get a bonus because we have a short-term sort of economic uh, gain. And that's where I feel like we are in the legislature right now, with the legislature, and it makes me really nervous mm -hmm. that we think about, like, it, to treat it either as building our base or being a bonus. You know, is it, is it, a, is it a real life pay increase or it is, a, is it a bonus? And too many of the things I think that we're seeing the advantage of right now are, are bonuses, and we need to think about them that way. That's good food for thought. Um, is there anything else you'd like our thousands of listeners? Um, just want to say hi to everybody out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carol, it's always a pleasure. Can I, to, actually, yes. can I add one thing? I was I was just kidding about that. So, <laughs> one other 
so the questions about what do we do, uh-huh. right? Um, I think are the most um, the most important questions that we're pondering right now. And so I've got a couple of asks that I would like people to consider. One is pull out your pens, everyone. One is to sim. I've already mentioned a couple. You know, go to stop digging. That's great. That'd be cool. We'd love that. <laughs> um, you know, go to a count me in presentation if you see one in your community. That'd be cool. We'd love that too. Um, but these are easier than that. Um, the first one is begin today to think about the things that your tax dollars buy that you value and spend just two or three days this week thinking about those things, making a list, either literally make a list or make a list in your own head about things that make a difference to you. I mean, let's, let's get basic, you know, your sewer water and your drinking water is separate. It's important. If you live in a third world country that doesn't occur, it's a pain in the neck, right? We have, we have, you know, we're protecting our air. We're protecting our water. We're worried about water supply. We're providing schools in every community across the state. We're now doing things where we're thinking about expanding broadband to broader communities. Um, some people are, you know, the thing they think about is that they have access to a, a, an art institution, whether it's a, a museum or a local gallery or local um, uh, education program that gets money in some way from the, from the public sector. But think about those things and actually write them down and begin to think about your life without them and what they mean to you. And then next week, tell somebody else what those things are and what is important to you and why it's important to you and ask them the question about what it is. And they may say, oh, I hate to pay taxes. Say, I got that. I mean, I don't dig it either. But but let's, for this, just for this time, let's think about what these things buy us, not just what it takes from us. And then when it gets to be um, April 17th, which is um, tax day this year, that's when we're, our federal tax returns are, are due for um, calendar year uh, 17, Join us, um, if you're on the social media, um, using the hashtag we call proud to pay and lift up some of the things that you actually value that you think are important. Because there are two things that does. One is it helps us start to think about taxes providing benefit beyond just how they affect our paycheck and our own personal economic bottom line. Because if we were all having to pay private school tuition, it would be a whole lot more expensive. Mm -hmm. If we were all having to pay for transportation in a different way, it would be a lot more expensive. So that's one thing. But I think the second thing that um, thinking about proud to pay um, does for each one of us is that it actually helps us take pride in the things that we do together. When people say they don't want to pay taxes or they don't, they like to, you know, figure out how not to pay taxes, it's almost as if they're sort of cheating their neighbors, right? <laughs> and I don't know, but I think as we enter this beautiful spring season um, and we think about what an incredible gift it is to live in the state of Colorado, we should spend a little bit more time thinking about not how we get over on our neighbor, but how what we do together um, actually benefits all of us and how it is through that collectively investing in one another that so many of the things that we cherish, whether it is our schools or our, our uh, public lands, um, that we can preserve them. So those are the things that I would really encourage people to do. I would also pe encourage people to get involved in some way 
um, with a ballot initiative this year. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that hard. It's more than voting. We know that people can do more than voting, than, than more than vote, and we know that we want to. So that's what um, that's what I would say about um, what the spring and fall, spring, summer, and fall looks like. And uh, hopefully, we'll be running into lots of folks, bumping into people all over that are getting engaged in making their communities the places that they want to live. Well, fantastic. One of the things I'm going to commit to you today, Carol, is that we're going to promote hashtag Proud to Pay in advance of tax day on April 17th and encourage our members and our listeners to share what they appreciate and that is paid for through your taxes. That's great. Thank, Thank you, you very much. That'd be great. Let, let's make this, let's see if we can't get this thing to trend. Uh, there, you know, we, there's all these little measurements. It's like we can feel the power of our own activity. Let, we're we're going to be working with lots of folks all across the state. So let's let's see if we can't make uh, being proud to pay the the predominant voice um, on on tax day, which is so often um, focused on people who don't bring that same perspective to the table. Thank and you. I'm sure our members can think of all the things they're proud of in our public schools that they see and get to experience every single day. So. Um, I know we'll have lots of great stories of what we're proud to pay for for our great public schools here in Colorado. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you to all of our listeners. Hopefully you learned a little bit about Colorado tax policy and how we fund essential services like public education. Thank you so much.